It's time now for Alaska Outdoors Magazine on Talk 700 KBYR. Opinions and views expressed on Alaska Outdoors Magazine are not necessarily the opinions and views of staff and management of KBYR. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Alaska Outdoors Magazine. Welcome to Alaska Outdoors Magazine with host Evan Swenson. You're invited to come along with us as we bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. It's your KBYR window to Alaska's outdoors. If it's in the outdoors and in Alaska, it's right here on Alaska Outdoor Magazine. Now here's Evan Swenson, your host for Alaska Outdoor Magazine. This is a live show originating in Anchorage. I'm Evan Swenson, and today my guests are Dan Bull and Karen Lang. Dan's an sport expert. We'll be talking with Dan about the extreme things that men and beasts do in the outdoors called I did a something or other. And Karen's with the Department of Fish and Wildlife. A little later, we'll talk with Karen about solving the pesky goose problem. We'll talk with Dan and Karen. Go to the phones for your questions and comments and save time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled Alaska's Second Largest City. Now, let's talk. Let's talk with uh, Dan Bull, and uh, we'll talk about the idea something or other. Uh, good afternoon, Dan. Howdy. <laughs> Welcome to Alaska Outdoors. This uh, I did a something or other. I, I didn't know what to put down here to, to say what you did. You you did a some so many things. What what is uh, your organization? I did a sport. Now what does that mean? Well, we're the human powered branch of uh, all that I did a activity out on the I did a rod trail. Anything human powered goes. Uh, I did a biking. I did a skiing. I did a foot, I did a snowshoe, and, uh, or a combination of all, all of them. Now, you're even going to get uh, into the dogs a little bit. I did a ski jarring. Yeah, we're cheating. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're cheating a little bit. Uh, we're the first to kind of bridge the gap between uh, the dog mushing community and the human-powered sports. And ski jurying is kind of a technical thing. I should say ski or bike jurying because uh, dogs can also you know, pull a person on a bicycle. Uh, it takes a lot of coordination, training of dogs, uh, and it's it's pretty uh, uh, high maintenance. So we're we're having a ski during ski biking or a bike during division this year also. Well, now is this a lot of things into one thing, or are, are these I did a things? Are they separate events as they go along? Now they, I did a extreme. That's a, a event, or is that the that's 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 the hardest. That's the toughest. Besides expeditions that we we do, uh, the I did a sport race. The the easiest is a hundred mile race. So you know it's it's still pretty hard. Uh, that's a hundred mile race, February fourteenth, out of Big Lake. Uh, just goes out on the Iditarod Trail a little bit and then comes back. Uh, that's February fourteenth, March fourth three days prior to the Iditarod sled dog race uh, is the extreme race, and that's 320 miles uh, from Knick, uh, Alaska, to McGrath across the Alaska Range. That's, a, uh, that's the toughest. Well, uh, would uh, not, if you're on the Iditarod Trail, wouldn't the dog mushers pass you by, or, uh, or are you ahead of them that far? Uh, we leave three days prior, and we're only going a third of the way uh, to Nome. And uh, technically, the, the slowest um, I did a sporters uh, going to McGrath will probably arrive in McGrath about the same time that, uh, you know, the, the, the lead mushers are, are, 
arriving, you know, in the Iditarod. The rest of the uh, the, the faster ones will get there in two to three days, which will uh, they'll be arriving in McGrath before the Iditarod even starts. Oh, really? Wow! Yeah. They go a hundred miles a day or better in the uh, back country. Last year was a slow year because of the the uh, warm weather during Iditarod time or prior to the Iditarod. And it took five days for the finisher, but John Stamstead from Cincinnati, Ohio, that won the race, has done 200 miles in in about 15 hours uh, on previous I did a sport races. So technically, he could get to with a good hard packed trail. You know, a cold snap that hit and no immediate new snow. Uh, yeah, he could be in McGrath in 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 less than two days. Good heavens. Uh, my next question, Dan, is really an IQ test. Uh, do you run the uh, race yourself? I've done the Idita Sports uh, six times. I've done it on uh, a bike three times. I've done it uh, on skis twice. I've done it on foot once. In fact, in 1989, uh, I bicycled with four others all the way to Nome in 22 days. So. Uh, as far as I know, we're the only human-powered group to to bike to Nome. <laughs> so yeah, I guess the answer is yes. I'm <laughs> I'm uh, missing a marble or two. <laughs> I think if I'd have known that before I had you as my guest, I'm, I would have questioned whether you'd uh, would had enough sense to even talk. If you're silly enough to do those things, there's there's crazies from all <laughs> over the world that that come and do this kind of thing. We've we have have a Spaniard already signed up, a New Zealander. Uh, the Brits come over, they like it. Uh, the Austrians came over uh, last year in the 100-mile event and, and uh, cleaned everybody's clock. So uh, we have the real fast people to the real adventurous type that want to take their time, take pictures, and, and just beat the, the, you know, the mandatory cutoff times. Just be ahead of the dogs, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, it uh, costs 300 bucks, I think, to uh, join the uh, entry fee. Is that right? That's for the extreme. The, uh-huh. the, uh, the 100-mile race on Valentine's Day, February 14th, is, is uh, 200 bucks. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, that's pretty much just getting into the race. Equipment and prep, uh, just to be able to qualify it, costs you much more. Let's talk about this extreme uh I did a sport extreme. That's the one that goes from here to McGrath, or connect to McGrath, I guess. Right. Just before the dog racers. Uh-huh. And it costs 300 bucks to go in, and you could be traveling, you know, in warm weather up as maybe even to close to freezing. Last year it was up to 40, actually, really? on this side of the, the range, and we were in open water in, in, uh, on the Etna River, and, and then it got cold on the other side uh, through the farewell burn. It was... Uh, around zero when we hit the Kuskokwim uh, from Nikolai to McGrath, it was 30 below. So you're talking about a 70, almost, yeah, 70 degree temperature change, and it could even be more extreme. Yeah. Well, let's say when you ta- start out from Kinnick, is it the first man that rides to McGrath? Is that the winner, or do you have to do you have to take a bike part of the way, uh, skis part of the way? Snow, what what is it? You choose your weapon. That's a, uh, a little slogan we've adopted over the years. Uh, you choose which mode of uh, human power transportation you're going to do. Uh, the required only requirement is you have to sleep out the first night at a mandatory camp at uh, the Little Sioux, 
you have to camp out in the gear you're going to carry the whole way. That's the only requirement. So if you decide to go light without a sleeping bag, and uh, you're going to have to shiver all night that first night. From there on, you can lodge to lodge. There's roadhouses along the way. There's uh, checkpoints, and uh, you can wine and dine at, at Rainy Pass Lodge. You just have to pay for it. Um, but you're free to do it in the spirit of the Klondike, you know, going from roadhouse to roadhouse. But there is one man. You do have to take some gear mandatory for one night. For for that first night where we we check to see that the racers are, are you know, competent to to do such a crazy thing. Well, you know that they're not competent to <laughs> have good sense, or they wouldn't try it. So uh, certainly they wouldn't uh, start off without that kind of gear all the way anyway. Would they? they wouldn't abandon their gear after that first night out. Uh, they can't. They have to. They have to check in with uh, with that gear. Oh, I uh, see. Uh, at each checkpoint. So uh, if they do go light, and there's there's guys that are very capable of 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 going extremely light, and we're talking less than 10 pounds of, of survival gear. Uh-huh. Uh, they just have to calculate, and they can't, they, they can't uh, misjudge. They're, they're really betting their life on the fact that uh, the weather's not going to get them down or they're going to be able to get across all the rivers or the weather won't come down and block them and any rescue attempt out if they got hurt. They they sign a pretty extensive waiver, and it's funny. We really don't care how crazy or uh, you know if they want to get lost. That's up to them. They're 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 choosing, but yet uh, in the dog, uh, you know, mode, the the during uh, group, we do care about the animals because of the human the you know the humane society sure. and the different watch groups, and so we have a, a whole different. Uh, required gear and uh, you know we, we've got a whole system for that dog group we really don't care how crazy the people are but uh, when you're taking your pets that's a different story now on this uh, race and one of the weapons as you call them that they use on this uh, the did a sport extreme one of the weapons could be uh, dog and skis right right and that's not truly human powered we're kind of uh, jumping into a different arena but uh, the ski during groups came to us and asked us if if uh, they wouldn't mind us uh, having them. And uh, you know, a, a ski during outfit can definitely help break trail. And we are using ski. We're we're using dog mushing trails. You know, the heritage of the Iditarod, the uh, the trail system out there is is. Uh, dog mushings and we recognize that so we're we're we tried it last year with one one ski juror bob lore from from anchorage here and he had the time of his life um the the racers enjoyed him out there so yeah we're we've got a class of ski jurors this year and hopefully next year a, a bike juror or two uh, Dan, if uh, if a person uh, wanted to uh sign up for that obviously they've got to be in tremendous uh, physical shape and uh, mental, uh, uh, you know, their mental, ha- they have to be sharp. Uh, we joke a little bit about them being crazy, but obviously the opposite has to be true or they would not survive in something like that. Out on the dog mushing trail, we hear the dog mushers hallucinating other things because of loneliness and darkness and, and of course, uh, long hours uh, without sleep. Do the uh, guys running under human power, do they have those same kind of things, or do they just collapse and, and they have to rest? 
they're the type of athletes that do this type of thing are either very calculating, they know how far they can go in a day's uh, time uh, they've trained. Uh, the uh, requirement just to enter this is you've had to have done a previous, I did a sport, you know, the shorter races uh, prior to, to entering or show us and be approved by the, the qualifying committee. They've got to show us a, a pretty extensive resume so no we don't accept just anybody with with money in hand uh but it's a, it's amazing what the human body can do uh you can train yourself to go to run slow or to bike slow and and uh you know it's a definitely a mental thing and yes we do have uh, hallucinations just like the the mushers anytime you get into a sleep deprivation exertion type of mode you're you're bound to hallucinate a little bit. Hmm. Well, now, uh, as those guys are out on the uh, out on the trail, what about uh, what preparation do they have of any uh, in case a mad mama moose decides to take exception to their uh, position on the trail? Uh, nothing. Uh, you're you're just you're exposed. Uh, of course, we we tell the out of staters how to to handle it, and uh, you know, there's different ways. There's different. Uh, methods and but no it's that's one of the hazards and that's uh you know a moose charging you just like on the ski trails of anchorage so shooting the shooting the moose off the trail is not an option no no uh guns are are you know it's not disallowed in fact we've had racers carry handguns in the past but that was just extra weight and i you know i don't think that's that's necessary you we had we had buffalo uh, confrontation, not confrontations, but uh, sightings out on the farewell burn last year, which, you know, is something that we never really anticipated. But uh, there's there's a herd of buffalo out there. Well, this isn't a race for someone to be sitting at home listening right now and saying, you know, that'd be kind of fun. I I've got three hundred dollars extra. I think I'll sign up. Uh, you'd have to be a very fine-tuned athlete and. Uh, winter-wise, camping-wise individual to even think about this, it seems to me. Yeah, I think the first step would be to to do, uh, you know, ski races or bike races in town. There's even winter races uh, in the biking community uh, first, and then graduate up to, uh, say, the 100-mile race out at Big Lake, which is highly monitored, uh, nice lodges, nice checkpoints along the way. You almost bounce between... Uh, gourmet cooking and and burgers and fries at the next place and you know you can you can do the hundred mile in in close to three days and have the time of your life i think that's the type of thing that you should almost jump up to like a marathon before you do a uh, an ultra marathon well now out on the uh i did a sport extreme uh out on that trail if if you start off with a bicycle does that bicycle have to end up in mcgrath no no, he, uh, the biker can actually drop his bike at a checkpoint. It's up to him to get the bike back from, say, Rainy Pass Lodge or Finger Lake or, or Squintna. Uh, he's got to freight that back, and, yes, he can have a pair of skis sitting there for him. And, and uh, in fact, we encourage ingenuity like that to try to calculate and, and outguess, uh, you know, the Alaska range. But... What we saw last year, mainly people uh, just jumped to one mode of transportation, could not concentrate on anything less, and uh, yeah, they pretty much stuck to, 
into one mode. So if a, if a guy starts out with the bikes, there's there some that really do start out with bikes, by the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, last year, uh, uh, well, seven bikers finished the race. Uh, I believe there was like nine that started on bicycles, and and it was during a 40-degree uh, uh, warm spell at Connect, and, and Connect Lake was had a foot of, of, of water over the ice, and they actually slogged through the lake just to hit the Iditarod Trail uh, for starters. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, bike looks pretty silly out there, but but in reality, uh, even in wintertime, the bicycle has proven, the mountain bike has proven to be uh, the fastest human-powered mode uh, year in, year out. Oh, really? Now, the winners of this race would actually... Me, I did a bike then, huh? Yeah. See, uh, a biker can push his bike and still, you know, be doing two, three, four miles an hour uh, in unbikeable, uh, you know, unbikeable trail. Mm-hmm. A skier can be skiing along at, at six, seven, eight miles an hour consistently, but when a bike, when the trail firms up, like at night or you know when the temperature is lower than say ten degrees. Uh, it's like a sidewalk, or it can be a sidewalk, and a biker can do 15 miles an hour uh, on the trail. There were days when we biked to Nome in, back in 89 that uh, we put on 100-mile days, you know, and camped out at night. And some days we could only do 20 or 30 or 40. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's proven to be the fastest mode over skiing or snowshoeing. Well, now, historically, back in... Uh 1889, I understand that there were some that went to the gold fields on bikes. Now, the 89 that you was talking about and said, we, you weren't speaking of historically of people, but you personally in 1989, I assume. Right, yeah, there were there was uh, three of us Anchorage uh, people uh, finished, Roger Cowles, myself, and, and uh, Les Motts uh, was on that team, and then we had one uh, guy from Wisconsin. Uh, that did it, and we, yeah, we were, we were uh, playing after the gold rush people that actually went to Nome and and uh, the gold fields back at the turn of the century. There's an old book out; it's out of print now, called Wheels on Ice, and it's documented with uh, old-fashioned pictures and sketches of of people grabbing what they could, bicycles, uh, horses. Uh, anything to get to the gold rush first, and the bike craze, uh, you know, the bicycle as we know it was just becoming popular uh, back at the turn of the century, and, and yeah, there were hundreds of people that actually bicycled in Alaska on, on frozen rivers and trails. Huh. Well, now, uh, Dan, that's the extreme. Uh, what the, what are the other, I did a something or others between uh, you know, just uh, sitting home on the and watching television and watching the Iditarod race and the and the Iditarod uh, Sport Extreme. What, what what's between there for a human power to do? Between. Yeah, just sitting about and being a casual observer or, or actually participating. What's the lowest level? I guess is the question that a person could participate in the Iditarod something. Uh, just going out on the bike trails in the. Uh, I don't know if I quite read you right. Do you have other races, other events? Uh, uh, not other... not shorter. We're more the marathon uh-huh. crazy. Uh, the Arctic Bicycle Club puts on uh, a, a winter mountain biking series here in town. 
uh, more in the 10 to 15 mile range, you know, the one hour to two hour range, uh, usually always comes after a, a, a foot of fresh snow fallen and it's pretty miserable and, and a bicycle can be out of place, but uh, they're always fun. Uh, <laughs> The, of course, the ski and people have the ski races, uh -huh. and, and yeah, there's plenty of of one to two hour events, uh, you know, in town in this area. Uh -huh. uh, now, Dan, how could someone uh, contact you if they was interested in finding out more about the Idita Sport uh, events? Yeah, they can call uh, the Idita Sport office here in town. is in the Huffman Business Park, three four five four five zero five. Okay, that's three four five. Four five zero five. Right. Okay. Uh, we also have a website, and it's uh, simply I did a sport dot com. Uh, I did a sport dot com. All right. Well, Dan, I appreciate uh, you visiting with us today about the I did a sport. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll look for you out on the trail, but I won't be one of the participants. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. Later. Okay. Bye. We'll talk to you later. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back, and we'll talk uh, with Karen Lang. Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. There's an author masterminds book by Rich Ritter, the new voice of the American West, The Perilous Journey Begins. A Scottish lass protects her younger sister from a savage beast. An Iowa farm boy discovers a dark secret on the gory battlegrounds of Shiloh. A colonel retreats in shame. A U.S. cavalry scout fights for his life. A Russian fur trapper sails from Sitka, Alaska. An enigmatic law student calmly departs Budapest after the brutal murder of a corrupt policeman. In Salt Lake City, a young woman, a few months shy of 15, gallops away from her wedding reception to escape an arranged marriage. But this is only a prelude to the magnificent epic awaiting you. You'll find all of Rich's Nor Things to Come, a trilogy of the American West, with the publication consultant's logo on the cover, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author mastermind's published author like Rich Ritter, the new voice of the American West, publication consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. The Perilous Journey Begins was just a dream until Rich Ritter ordered his own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Rich Ritter called, and now The Perilous Journey Begins is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. We're talking uh, in the next half hour to Karen Lang. We're going to be talking about the goose problem in the Anchorage area. Okay, now let's talk to uh, Karen Lang uh, from the uh, biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, some folks like geese, some folks hate geese. Uh, Karen, you're a biologist, and I guess geese are keeping you employed right now. Well, they are sort of at the moment, and I actually love geese. I've been studying them in the wild for uh, a long time, and I, I think they're really wonderful birds. Well, uh, other than uh, the, uh, the droppings that the, that the birds leave around, What's wrong with having a few geese around where we can enjoy them? Yeah, well, 
I think that's the key. I think it's great to have a few geese around where we enjoy them. Um, the thing with the geese we have in Anchorage is that they weren't here until the city was. Um, this wasn't natural goose habitat. We've created that. So um, it's a, a population we are somewhat responsible for, and, and we need to look at that. The major problem with the geese is the airport safety, and that's what we're most concerned about. Well, is, uh, is that a, a problem? I know we've had a serious problem out with the, uh, at Elmendorf, but that problem seems to have been cured now. What about other problems? Is there, you know, Merrill Field, uh, Anchorage International, mm -hmm. some, is that a, still a problem there? Yeah, um, particularly International Airport in Elmendorf. And I think if you ask the folks at Elmendorf, they would <laughs> disagree that, that the problem was solved there. What they do is they have spent several million dollars changing their habitat out there so that they wouldn't attract geese as much, but they still need 20 people, which they take off their regular jobs for six months of the year to haze geese at the airfield around the clock, 24 hours a day. And uh, that's coming out of their regular budget. They don't um, have extra money for that, so they've just taken those people off their normal tasks. No goose fund, huh? No goose fund yet. Um, I think they've developed a really excellent uh, program, but they, uh, uh, they've really developed it there in-house. Well, but they also, um, they also are very much concerned about the number of birds in town. They don't feel like, well, we can haze them, because whenever you have a bird in your airspace, you've got danger. So the fact that they had to stop flights 1,800 times this summer um, because there were geese in the area is a big worry to them, and they are very concerned that the risk is, is real high right now for a strike and that it will get higher as the geese continue to increase. Now, has the risk increased uh, over the years because of these, this increased uh, goose problem, or is it just that we're just now noticing it and mm -hmm. being brought forth? Or When well, did the problem really start? Yeah, I think it's some of both. Um, the geese are doubling every five years. So in 1991, we only had 2,000 of them, um, and, you know, the risk was increasing without our really being aware of it. By 1996, we had 4,000 geese. Um, in another five, four or five years, we'll have, um, you know, 10,000. So um, it's, it's, it is increasing all the time, but unfortunately the crash made us hyper-aware of, of the problem. It doesn't take very many goose strikes to cause a tragedy like that. That's the problem. Um, the statistics for the number of geese that have hit airplanes in the area are not real high, partly because pilots don't always report strikes. Uh -huh. um, but the geese that do hit airplanes can cause incredible damage and sometimes fatal damage. It's not like the small birds that hit planes. And this is a seven-pound you know, missile that's, that's hitting a fast-moving object like an airplane. Well, now, you've come up with some alternatives, five of them, I think, that you want to discuss uh, on, uh, later on this month, November the 30th. Uh, what are those five alternatives? Yeah, well, we've got one in there that just says, well, what if we just keep doing what we're doing? Uh -huh. In other words, allow the population to continue to increase. And that would include the airports are killing geese on airport property, and, and that would continue, and that may be 200 or 300 birds a year. Uh, so that's one alternative. And then we have four alternatives that would set population goals um, for, the, for the geese in town, and those vary from about the number there are now, 4,000, there were actually 4,500 by 1997 summer, um, all the way down to 500, which is a very low number of geese. Um, and we've, we've proposed uh, as a sort of intermediate between the airport's concern and people's you know, love of the geese to set the goal at about 2,000 birds. 
Well, now, uh, why do you need a, uh, a, a session to where you ask the uh, folks to come in and comment on this? You're the biologist. You're the expert. We've got other experts at Elmendorf and International and other places that uh, feel that they know. Why don't you just go do it? Why do you need the public to comment on it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Well, I think it is a social question. There are a lot of people who are concerned about what what we're doing with the geese, and I think they need to be informed, and we all need to decide as a community how many birds we want to have here. We created the conditions for this population to flourish, and we ought to do that mindfully instead of, you know, just sort of in ignorance, not knowing we're doing it, and, and really think about, you know, how can we have a good sort of relationship with these birds um, that's at, at a number that, that will take care of both our, our safety and, and the other concerns. So we're doing public comments so that people can get good information about the situation and, you know, may help us come up with uh, other things we can, we can do in addition to make things safer and also to handle some of the nuisance problems that some people experience. Well, uh, I recall a few years ago, Karen, I lived on Campbell Lake, and we had uh, a few geese and swans that would come by there occasionally, and they were uh, quite an attraction when they'd stop by uh, on our lake, and we'd uh, look at them, and, and there were those that at that time that was uh, was very adamant about saving these wetlands across the lake and not wanting houses to be built there to protect the habitat and uh, that of these uh, geese. Now, are those folks that wanted to uh, protect this habitat, are, uh, is that caused part of the problem, not the folks, but the habitat? Yeah. Well, not exactly. That's, a, that's a, a good question. The natural wetlands that are in Anchorage um, harbor a whole variety of birds and other animals, and, and there's been a lot of interest, you know, by some people in trying to save those wetland areas. But those really did not traditionally harbor the geese. Mm-hmm. Um, the geese nest down in places like the coastal refuge, and they still do, naturally, um, which is a very different kind of habitat than the kind of spruce bog we had up here in Anchorage before it was a town. The reason the geese came is because if you could invent a perfect food for them, it would be mowed fertilized grass. And if you could imagine a perfect spot for them when they can't fly in July, they lose all their flight feathers, um, it would be a lake surrounded by this perfect food. And so it was really building the neighborhoods that um, created the habitat, allowing the birds to increase, not the the natural wetlands that were here before. Um, it is true that we created some habitat on purpose for geese, such as Westchester, and um, that's a little ironic. I don't think we realized that it, there would be a point it would be such a problem. Now, when you say we didn't realize, are you speaking uh, as the biologist community or the uh, community that wanted to you know, provide uh, habitat for, for our uh, wild things or just the community in general? Well, I, I guess all of those things, really. Um, I don't know that um, until about 20 years ago, people realized what the goose populations could do in urban areas um, because of, of what they eat. I think there just hadn't been a lot of attention paid by biologists or anyone else. Um, there was one subspecies of Canada goose that was almost extinct in Minnesota, it was almost extinct completely, and they nurtured it back to health, and now it's a, a big urban nuisance. So. Even the biologists, you know, were in favor of helping this goose out, and um, nobody nobody realized that uh, it would be such a problem. A lot of the food studies on geese have been done in the last, you know, 20 years or so, and so as we've been learning, it's we've had to look at these growing urban populations and, and understand why they're happening. I don't think they were really they really happened before 
you know, the industrial lawn era came into use after World War II with lawnmowers and chemical fertilizers when everybody could have these beautiful lawns and we could increase our parks and um, and it's just made a perfect environment for the for the birds. Well, now uh, the uh, biologist, uh, scientific uh, community out there. Well, not just. I, I don't think we just need to pick on them at all. And I don't mean to pick on any of you, but we as as people, uh, we we need to be, uh, in my opinion, we need to be manipulating the uh, the way that we live because we move into areas that did not otherwise we didn't did not otherwise live, right. and we create habitat which we have done for both the moose and the goose yeah. in Anchorage and uh, and then other areas where we have uh, gone in and uh, perhaps made the habitat uh, we've taken the habitat in fact some places and com- completely eliminated it Absolutely. Now, is there anything uh, I, I guess the question that I asked there are some folks that just say we ought to leave well enough alone and man ought to go away and er- everything ought to be a wilderness we ought to sit back and look at it uh, how do you feel ab- about where we're going as as a people, Alaskans particularly, uh, Karen? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question. I know I live in a place that in 1980, when I came up to Alaska, I used to come down here to South Anchorage to look at boreal owls, and now I live in a neighborhood that um, has been built where that forest was. I think we need to um, have places to live, and uh, you know, human beings do change the environment, but we have great power to do that, much more than any other animal, and so I think what I'd like to see is that we continue to learn and understand the biology of the animals that we affect, either good or bad. I mean, there, as you say, there are other animals we've, we've destroyed habitat for. And then um, find ways either to share those, our, our city habitat with them or to make sure we set aside you know, other places where we can have them. And that's sort of the question we're coming up with here is people like having this wildlife in town, just like they like moose, but... It also can be a problem, so we're going to have to struggle with how we want to do it. But I think we're, we're too powerful to just ignore it. You know, we, we can't just leave it alone because we've, we've recreated this environment where it's not a, a natural situation. If these birds were in the wild, uh, many of the goslings would die before three weeks of age. That's where most of the mortality occurs, from predation. Um, and they would have to work a lot harder to find food. So there would be birds dying if this were a wild population and since it's not um we have to kind of look at our part in it i don't know if that answers your question sure it does it goes a long <laughs> ways well you take uh, let's say for an example these birds that would die uh, of natural causes and yet we sit here and we see these uh, a, a bird for an example get struck by a car and killed right. i've seen them land and my heart uh, it it uh, it kind of rings just a little bit when I see that. However, then I, in the same breath, I'd have to confess that I've gone goose hunting. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yet those that are killed in town seem somehow different. Uh, do you find that to be true with everyone? Or? Yeah, I, I think that is true. And I think that's why, um, you know, there's concern about the birds. As we sort of see them almost as, you know, as our birds, we see them more as, as individuals. Yeah. Um, yeah, they get a personality or something. We become attached to them. Right, right, and that I think that that is what makes it so hard. But we have to somehow confront the fact that we've inadvertently created a goose farm here, and and, and I don't know quite how you come to terms with that. I don't like the idea of killing them either. They're wonderful to watch. Um, I, I think you've you've really hit on one of the reasons it's such a problem for people. Mm-hmm. You know, hunted birds are out somewhere in the wild where you don't know them 
or see them uh, as individuals. Yeah. And, and they seem like, especially a goose, they, they've always had the mystique like uh, a steelhead trout, that right. they had the, some superpower that they could see you from 40 miles away behind rocks and right. they could go away. But here in town, they're just friendly, dumb birds, you yeah. know. And, uh, but, but they're pretty and we like them. Yeah, exactly. They're not, they don't seem as wild. In fact, I have been struck by the difference. If I walk down in the spring down to the coastal refuge, I feel like I'm back out on the Yukon Delta. Um, there are birds nesting down there, and um, they will crawl or, or flush off of nests just like wild birds. You know, they won't stay and try to attack you. Uh, and they're nesting in, you know, very natural kinds of habitats down there and um, spread out and behave just like birds in other places. And it's, it's kind of uh, amazing that there's a completely different um, behavior and sort of social organization of the birds in town than there is uh, even just outside. So they've created something new here, but they've been so successful at it. You know, I mean, it's very successful for them. Their population is increasing. So the changes in their behavior have worked for them. So um, they'll be very tame and, and friendly. Unfortunately, that tameness makes it harder to haze them at the airports and more likely for them to be killed. So we really discourage people from feeding the birds uh, for that reason. Um, let them be a little bit more wild. It would be better for them. Well, in the long run, uh, probably all of those birds, uh, if, if they're like everything else in nature, they're going to die a very traumatic uh, death mm -hmm. somewhere along the line. And so having that power that you speak of, we have an opportunity, it seems to me, uh, to somehow make that death uh, of benefit uh, to man or to others mm -hmm. and to make it less traumatic than than being chased by a coyote or a wolf. How do you feel about that? Well, I certainly hope that if we do, well, we plan if, if, if there are birds killed and when there are birds killed at the airport, that they would be of benefit. All of the birds that are currently killed at airports are donated mostly to the food bank of Alaska. Um, and even eggs that are collected, um, all of, of them at the airports have been donated uh, mostly to the elders program at South Central Foundation, but also to other charitable groups uh -huh. for food. And we would continue that, that any birds or eggs that would be collected would be donated to charity for food. Um, that, would, that would be part of the program. Karen, I have a friend that used to raise uh, two geese every year. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, he, he would always name one of them Thanksgiving and one Christmas. And so what, maybe that's what we ought to do is uh, put a name on all of these geese out here and, and then uh, split the pot or draw or something so that you could have uh, one goose for Thanksgiving and another for Christmas. There you go. <laughs> uh, just one last question, never going to run out of time, uh, Karen. Uh, there's, uh, you're hired as a biologist, and I assume that part of your uh, marching orders is to maintain the biology and to uh, do it on a scientific level and it seems that the goose are being managed uh, along with other wildlife by emotion not uh, science uh, how do you weigh that i mean what doesn't that is that frustrating to you as a scientist <laughs> i guess it is it is frustrating to me when um when there's misinformation as a scientist you know i like i like information and i like facts and i like to make decisions based on those things so it's it's always hard for me when i feel like um People don't have all the facts, um, and that, that is frustrating. Um, but, you know, managing wildlife is also a social uh, kind of thing. We make decisions about whether hunting is a good idea and where and how or, 
or um, other kind of values about it. So that, it is one of the frustrating things about being a biologist is sort of mixing with that and figuring out what we, uh, what we can offer. Um, we can offer biological expertise and understanding, some understanding of the birds, I hope, um, and, uh, and then offer that to people so that they can make, make good decisions. But uh, I, I hope that it will be on using the information that we have and, and not uh, simply on emotion. Um, although, you know, that has to come into although, it, too. Although you and I do have some emotion about the exactly, geese. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Karen, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, visiting with us today about that. Again, the meeting is November the 30th, and uh, if you want to register, you need to do that early and by calling 786-3459. Well, actually, we're having a meeting tomorrow night. Oh, I see. Um, sorry, yeah. The, Go uh, ahead. Uh, it's at Spinard. Uh, community uh, Recreation Center uh-huh. at 6.30, and it, we're going to be talking about non-lethal methods of dealing with geese, um, looking at, at those various options and talking about what they do and what they can't do. And um, so anyone would be welcome to come to that. The November 30th date is the last day for public comment on oh, the I draft see. environmental okay. assessment. So give that number a call that you gave, okay. 786-3459, if you want a copy of the environmental assessment, and you can... Um, you can make comments, but oh. anyone would be welcome to come tomorrow night. Very good. Got to run now, Karen. Thank you very much. Thank you. You bet. Bye now. And now before we close the show, there's just time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled Alaska's Second Largest City. Anchor River Campground becomes Alaska's second largest city during king season. It hasn't always been that way. Back before statehood, I was fishing the anchor one evening with a friend. We intended to catch a few dollies for dinner. I put on a gold number 14 hook and loaded it with a single salmon egg. It had been raining. The river was a bit muddy. I didn't see an underwater snag and kept hanging up on it. I figured that's where the fish would be, but it was difficult to get my bait through the hole without hooking the snag. It didn't seem to be a cruel snag and always let go just before I lost my setup. On one cast, my bait stopped and I thought I'd snagged up again. I pulled on the line, but it didn't come loose. I gently tugged again. The line stayed put. I pulled again. Nothing. I gave it as hard a jerk as I figured the line could stand, and then all hell broke loose. A resting steelhead had slipped away from its hiding place behind the snag and sucked in my bait without me feeling the take. My last pull set the hook, and the fish exploded into multiple bursts of dives and jumps. I was caught completely by surprise, and the fish was way ahead of my meager attempts to contain it. The steely had me hook, line, and sinker. After a series of breakaway vaults, the fish turned and charged directly at me. I ground the reel's handle as fast as I could, but was unable to keep up with the, and the line became slack. It was a mighty bid for freedom. The steelhead dove to the bottom, turned upstream, and with all its energy came straight off the bottom and cleared the surface by about three feet. At the top of its mid-air fight, flight, my ra- rapid reeling paid off, and the line tightened, pulling the fish toward a muddy river bar. The height of the jump and the snap of my tightening line swung the fish so it landed two feet up on the bar. With one flip of its tail and a jerk of its head, the fish became unattached to my line and began began sliding into the river. Without thinking of the consequences, my friend jumped over the bank and made a flying tackle on the steelhead. He was able to flip the fish to a more secure position on the bar. Mud covered both the fish and my friend as he held up the prize, my fish first steelhead. Fishing on the anchor has changed over the years, and so have I. Three and a half decades ago, when this incident took place, we killed the steelhead and ate it for dinner. Since then, I've matured and have found greater pleasure in releasing all rainbow, resident or sea run, 
and more pleasure than in killing and eating them. I still fish the anchor, but it's now for only catch and release. I recommend you release all rain, uh, river rainbow and steelhead. It's good for the fishing, and it'll ensure that we have them around the next time we go out. We'll be back Thursday at 2 and invite you to come along with us. If it's in the outdoors and in Alaska, you'll find it on Alaska Outdoor Magazine. Thursday, as always, we'll bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. In the meantime, keep in touch. <laughs>